Welcome. You're listening to The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. I'm Jordan, and in this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Bogardus, a professor of philosophy at Pepperdine University. One of the arguments for God's existence that I'm most interested in is an argument from consciousness. In this interview, we lay the groundwork for this argument by defending dualism. Dr. Bogardus will first summarize some of the views on the mind-body problem, and then he'll offer three arguments for dualism, one from knowledge, another from personal identity, and the last from what he calls undefeated dualism. This is a really good interview, one of my favorites. So I'm excited to begin. Let's jump in. How did you get interested in the philosophy of mind? Because if I'm not mistaken, this is what your dissertation was on, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, I think it started back in um, high school for me when I was younger. My, my mother worked in a laboratory doing molecular biology research. And so she very much encouraged me to get into biology. And in high school, I started working in a lab at UC Irvine. And so I was very interested in um, molecular biology. I continued working in labs at UC San Diego. I chose UC San Diego because of its strength in biology, but also its proximity to the beach. <laughs> um, and then I remember at UC San Diego, that was actually the first university to have a cognitive science program. Um, and so it was kind of famous for that program. And I decided to take a few classes in cognitive science um, because I found the mind and the brain very interesting. And I, I actually ended up minoring in cognitive science. Um, but I still remember the first cognitive science class I took. Um, I mean, I had no idea what to expect really, but I was kind of surprised um, by the fact that we spent the first couple of weeks thinking about philosophy of mind. And in fact, as many philosophy of mind classes go, the first couple of weeks were devoted to um, rejecting dualism. <laughs> and I think that's because most professors realize these students are gonna come into the class as kind of common sense dualists. Most people are kind of unreflectively sort of born dualists. That's the common sense view and there's empirical evidence to back that up. So they feel like they need to um, disabuse the students of dualism right, right out of the gate. And so I remember two things about that experience. One was, um, that was the first time I had really encountered philosophical arguments. I was, I was very much accustomed to kind of like empirical scientific data and arguments. And I was, I mean, I was raised Christian and so I was familiar with kind of theological arguments from scripture, but I had never encountered just purely philosophical arguments like from reason alone. Um, and so that stuck out to me because I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. I don't know what this is, but um, I think I really like it. And <laughs> the second thing I remember was um, how bad I thought the arguments against dualism were. <laughs> and I remember like looking around the room and everyone else was like, oh yeah, dualism's terrible. But I, I remember thinking like, I don't, I don't think these arguments are very good. Um, and so that, and I, and I never really got past that. Um, and so I spent like the rest of my time in cognitive science classes grappling with this question, like what is the relationship between the mind and the body? And then I continued that in graduate school. And as you said, I eventually wrote a dissertation on the mind-body problem. Awesome. All right. Well, the subtitle to this interview was exploring the mind-body problem. So first, can you just describe what is the mind-body problem? 
Yeah, so I think it might be a little misleading to suggest that, I mean, it's not your fault. This is, people often talk about the mind-body problem, but um, there's not only one. <laughs> I think maybe the best way to kind of characterize the state of the field is to say that there's a central question. Um, one of the central questions in philosophy of mind is what is the relationship between the mind and the body? Um, are they the same thing? Are they different things? Do they both exist? I mean, some some people question that. Um, so that's the central question. Is there a mind, is there a brain, and how do they relate? And then depending on which answer you give to that question, you have problems. <laughs> there are problems for every answer that you might give to that central question. There are objections to every view you might hold. And so I think that's what we mean when we say the mind-body problem. What's your answer to this central question about the relationship between the mind and the brain? And what sort of replies can you give to the objections? And so the task of the philosopher working in this field is to sort of weigh the pros and the cons of all the possible answers and then decide which answer on balance is doing the best. And I think that is um, substance dualism. I think that's the best answer. And incidentally, I think that's the answer that I think it's straight up entailed by scripture, by the Bible. But at the very least, I think substance dualism is the view that fits most naturally with the Christian view of the world. Very good. Okay, so the the mind-body problem, there's not just one, but this central question in the philosophy of mind uh, when, we, when we come to this topic is, what's the relationship between the mind and the brain or the body? And depending on how you answer that, um, you're going to end up with some different positions. So what are some of these alternative views of the relationship between the mind and the body? Yeah, I think it's useful when you enter a new field of philosophy, if, if some of your viewers are kind of new to this field, it's nice to know the landscape. And so um, are you able to display that first slide? Yes, I am. Okay. Let's so I think this might, this might help people get an idea of the terrain here. Um, so this first slide just shows some possible views you might take um, on the question of what's the relationship between um, mental features and bodily features or features of your brain. So by mental features, I mean things like sensations, like the feeling of pain or the feeling of pleasure or the taste of banana, the taste of chocolate, these sorts of um, sensations. But there's other features of our minds like our beliefs and our desires, our intentions and so on. Um, so what's the relationship between those and features of your brain? So we all sort of know the features that brains might have. They can be characterized in neurophysiological terms, in terms of like what sort of neurons are connected with, what other sort of neurons, at what rate are they firing, what sort of neurotransmitters are crossing the synapses and so on. Um, so question, what's the relationship between, for example, um, uh, and sensation of pain and whatever sort of brain state is associated with the sensation of pain, whatever sort, whatever sort of brain state we have um, going on when we experience pain, what's the relationship between pain and that brain state? So here on this slide, you see a kind of spectrum of possible answers. And um, it's hard to know which one to start with, but maybe we could start on the left. And yeah. so eliminative materialism. So according to that view, um, 
the brain state is real. Um, and let's just call this brain state um, in, in the philosophical literature, you often hear about C fibers firing, but that's just kind of a placeholder for whatever the neural correlate of pain is. So we'll talk about C fibers firing as whatever's going on in your brain when you feel pain. Okay, so the eliminative materialist says that brain state's real for sure. Um, but this talk of pain is sort of a relic of a primitive kind of folk psychology that it turns out we should abandon or we should reject. And um, so that's why they're called eliminative materialists because they think we should eliminate this mental vocabulary from our theories. Um, again, it's kind of a relic of a more primitive time and it doesn't really match up to the reality of the situation, which is C-fibers firing. And, and that might sound kind of radical. It's sort of the, the worst public relations move in the history of philosophy <laughs> was saying things like, there is no pain, there are no beliefs, there are no desires, because it just kind of sounds like you're feigning anesthesia, as it's often called, like pretending like there's no such thing as pain. Um, but let me try to motivate the view a little bit. They're not, they're not quite saying anything so radical as that. They'll give analogies like this. They'll say, look, once upon a time, people considered epilepsy, um, I think it was called the sacred disease. I think that's how um, Hippocrates refers to it. And because they thought that it had some sort of divine origins, or maybe people considered it a kind of like demon possession, epilepsy. Um, and so maybe once upon a time when somebody was suffering from an epileptic seizure, uh, maybe other people would say, Oop, this is another fit of demon possession, or this is demonization. But you might think once we found out what was really going on, and it was just epilepsy, we did not say, oh, it turns out demon possession just is epilepsy. We didn't say that. We didn't try to identify these two theoretical terms and say the demon possession, that just is epilepsy. Rather, what we did was we discovered what epilepsy was and we said, this is so different from demon possession. I mean, demons are these malevolent agents um, afflicting people. Epilepsy is so different from that that we um, abandoned this other theoretical term. We um, got rid of the demon possession from our theories. So we eliminated that from the theory. So eliminative materialists say we should do the same thing with our mental terms. Our conception of pain is so different from the underlying reality, C-fibers firing. There's just no way these could be identical. So we should abandon this concept of pain. We don't need it. There is no pain, but there is this other thing, <laughs> C-fibers firing. Okay, so that's eliminative materialism. And um, once upon a time, that was actually pretty popular at UC San Diego, um, advocated by the Churchlands, Paul and Patricia Churchland. Uh, but let's move, let's move along this little spectrum here. Um, and I think this puts us in a position to understand what you might call reductive materialism or reductive physicalism. On that view, um, C-fibers firing is real. Pain is also real. Pain exists. That should, be, that should remain part of our best theories, but they identify these two. They, I guess I'm, on this view, there are, there's not two things here. There's just one thing that goes by different names. Pain just is C-fibers firing. So that's why we've got this little equal sign there um, on the picture. Pain just is this brain state. And um, to help sort of explain the theory, they'll give you analogies like, well, it's like water and H2O or Superman and Clark Kent. 
just because Superman is Clark Kent, that doesn't mean that um, everybody's going to be able to realize this upon reflection. Um, in fact, it was sort of an interesting discovery when people found out that Superman is Clark Kent. Superman seems very different from Clark Kent. Superman is a superhero who can fly and shoot lasers out of his eyes and so on. Clark Kent is a mild-mannered reporter and so on. So it's kind of surprising when we found out that it was the same guy. Well, similarly, pain doesn't seem like a brain state um, and brain states don't seem like pain, but nevertheless, we've discovered that they just are the same thing. Um, so that's reductive materialism in a nutshell. Let and me that, pause there for a second. So obviously both of those are types of materialism. Yeah. I've seen the term physicalism used. Would these, would those be synonymous materialism and physicalism in this case? Yeah, I think um, most philosophers use those terms synonymously. And um, I think that physicalism has, well, materialism, the term materialism has kind of fallen out of favor. And some people think that physicalism is maybe a more accurate way to characterize the view if only because what physics now tells us is um, what's most fundamental and what's mo most real isn't merely matter, but like matter and energy and so on. So we, we kind of have a, um, a than just matter. So maybe a better way to characterize the view is physicalism. What physicalists believe in is only physical stuff is real. And that's more than matter, it's matter and energy. Um, so yeah, I don't think much turns on that distinction. Um, usually philosophers just kind of use these terms interchangeably, but I think it is true that these days physicalism is a more popular way of characterizing the view, a more popular term. Okay. So now we're going to shift from materialism or physicalism to dualism. And there's two types you're going to describe. So start with property dualism. Okay, so property dualism um, agrees with reductive materialism when it comes to the question of what you are. So I, did, I, I neglected to mention this a moment ago, but um, reductive materialism, when you're, if you ask a reductive materialist, what am I? They will say you are a body or maybe just a part of a body like a brain. Um, so in addition to making an identity claim about mental states, um, those are just physical states. They also make an identity claim about persons. Persons just are physical objects like bodies or brains. So property dualism agrees with that bit of reductive physicalism, reductive materialism. The property dualist agrees that you are a physical object. So when it comes to substances or things, there's only one thing here. You are your body or maybe just a part of your body like your brain. There's just one substance, but it's called property dualism because when it comes to these properties or features of the mind and these properties or features of the brain, they think those are distinct. So they'll say pain is real, C-fibers firing is real, but these are not the same property. These are not the same feature. Those are two different things. Sort of like um, if you just think about a triangle, it's one thing for a triangle to be trilateral it has three sides. That's one feature of the triangle. Another feature of the triangle is that it's triangular. It has three angles. Um, those are two different features, even though every triangle has both. Um, so the property dualist says something like that with respect to mental features and um, physical features of the brain. There are different features. 
but they're both had by the brain. It's the brain or the body that has both of these features. And so I give a little analogy there on the slide. Um, they'll say something like this, look, smoke is caused by fire, um, but smoke is different from fire. Um, and yet there's only one thing there, the wood that's both smoking and on fire. So that's just an analogy. Um, don't press it too hard, but the analogy is something like this. There's just one thing there, the brain, that has both of these features, um, mental features and features like C-fibers firing, neurophysiological features. So that's kind of like the smoke and the fire. You've got two different things here, but there's just one thing that is both smoking and on fire. That's property dualism. Um, and I should say that there are some Christians who hold this view, even though, as I said, I think full-on substance dualism is um, the view that's, I think, um, taught by scripture, or at least fits most naturally with scripture. There are some um, Christian philosophers who are materialists about persons. They think people are material objects, but those same philosophers tend to be dualists about um, mental properties and physical properties. If only because if God shares any of our mental properties, but none of our physical properties, then mental properties can't be physical properties. So I think that's probably why, although some Christians are willing to be materialists about persons, they usually don't go for reductive or eliminative materialism because of considerations about God. All right, um, let's just talk about substance dualism real quick. So there we get a dualism, not just of properties. Um, so like pain and C-fibers firing are different features, different properties but also we get a dualism of substances. Um, so you are not just your body, you are not your brain. You are a different thing, a different substance from your brain. And I should just quickly add that when I use the word substance, I'm not using it in like a chemistry class sense where that means like stuff um, because a substance dualist typically doesn't think that you are made of any kind of stuff at all. Rather, we're using it in a philosophical sense where substance literally means like that which stands under and has properties or features. So there's your body and your brain, that's one substance that has features, physical features. It's sort of like a pin cushion and all the physical properties are stuck in it. And then there's this other substance, you, um, which is not, doesn't have any physical features stuck in it, it has only mental features. Um, so here are some analogies. It's like a driver in a car, two different things, um, or a pilot in a ship, um, or some the way it's sometimes put sort of derisively is the ghost in the machine. Dualists believe in a, a ghost in a machine. Um, but I'm allowed to say that, and I'm, a, I'm allowed to use these little Pac-Man ghosts because I myself am a substance dualist, so I can have a little fun at my own expense. Um, but yeah, those are the views. Do you want to say anything about that before we move on? No, no. I thought that all that was good. Uh, maybe just one clarification question uh, would be, so take substance dualism since you said, you know, you think this is the correct view. On this view, you are the, you are one substance, which presumably is the soul, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, this other substance, like you're, you're connected with it, but that other substance is not what you are. Like, so yeah. in this case, we've got soul and body, you would be the soul, but then you have a body. Yes. Okay. Now on the other views, 
on all those views, you are your body, right? Yeah, although I will add, um, if you're if you're an eliminative materialist when it comes to uh, mental properties or mental states, typically you also say the same thing about persons. So there are quite a lot of people out there, a lot of them working in cognitive science who say, the self is an illusion. Really, there are no selves. And they'll even say, like Alex Rosenberg, a philosopher at Duke, says, there are no persons, <laughs> there are no selves, which is pretty radical. Um, but I mean, all the motivation for saying there, there are no mental states might lead you to say, yeah, there are no selves either. Um, so I'll just give that caveat. If you're an eliminative materialist, you might say, just as there's no pain and no beliefs and no desires, there are no selves either, that's an illusion. But reductive materialism and property dualism both agree, um, people are real, there are selves, um, you exist, but you just are a material object or a physical object. Okay. All right, so what I wanted to go to next, let me pull this this up. Uh, so you had another slide though. Uh, I yeah, don't know if yeah. you wanted to, to talk about this one at all before we look at some arguments for substance dualism. Yeah, so this slide was just meant to sort of illustrate possible views that one might take on the relationship between you and your body or your brain. So I think it's good to at least display this and maybe your viewers can look at it later. Um, feel like we've kind of covered this already. We've, we've talked a bit about eliminativism already. Um, I'll briefly mention that at the other end of the spectrum, idealism um, is sort of like the mirror image of eliminativism. Whereas the eliminativist says only physical stuff is real. So that means um, no you, no mental properties, etc. cetera. Um, the idealist says only mental stuff is real. <laughs> All this apparent physical stuff is merely apparent really um, only minds exist and only states of those minds exist. Um, to be is to be perceived and all that. So that's idealism at the other end. You're real, it looks like you have a body and a brain, but really these are just um, experiences that you're having. Um, so sort of Bishop Barclay's view. Um, and then I'll just say, as for the intermediate views, um, materialism, constitution view, and hylomorphism, um, and I guess dualism as well. Those are all different views on what the relationship between a mind and a body or a brain might be. So eliminativists and idealists don't think that there are both minds, both selves and bodies and brains. If you think that people are real and bodies and brains are real, now you have the, a further question is what's the relationship between these? The materialist says, identity. It's just one thing. Um, another possibility is a constitution view on which you've got this constitution relation, but there's no identity. And so an analogy here is it's something like the relationship between a statue and the lump of clay or the lump of bronze that it's made out of, the material that it's made out of. The statue is constituted, but not identical to the lump. That's a view that some people have. Um, Another possibility is a sort of Thomistic dualism or hylomorphism, according to which the relationship between the soul and the body or the brain is one of um, informing. The soul is the form of the body. And I don't think we have time to try to figure out what that means, but I wanted to at least mention it. <laughs> it's not identity, it's some other kind of relation. And I'll just quickly add that Thomists typically take themselves to disagree with 
Cartesian dualists. That's the next slide. That's the next um, picture over. Because Thomas will say that human persons are actually composites. They're composed of two things, a body and a soul. If you don't have a body and a soul, you're not a human person. I think the Cartesian can agree, though. The Cartesian just says that you are not your body because you could exist without your body. And frankly, I think the Thomist has to agree um, because, I mean, Aquinas himself thought that you may go on to exist in an intermediate state in purgatory without a body at all. Your soul can exist without a body. And hopefully that's you because it's suffering the punishments of um, purgatory and it would be unjust if somebody else was suffering those. So that's you, but there's no body. So you're the sort of thing that doesn't need a body. Hey, that's basically what Descartes was saying. In fact, Descartes even said, the soul is the form of the body. Okay, and then the last thing about this slide is um, Cartesian dualism. That's the next one with the little Pac-Man ghost. Um, according to that, you just are a soul. Um, although you are related to this body, it's not identity, it's not constitution. Maybe it's informing, depending on what that means, but it's definitely a two-way causal connection. You can cause things to happen in your body. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> and your body can cause things to happen to you. Like if it gets damaged in some way, now you feel pain and so on. Okay, so I think that's probably all we should say about those views. And then I think um, the plan is to move on to some arguments for dualism. Yeah. Yeah, so we're about, we just hit the 26-minute mark. So oh, wow. <laughs> right now, no, 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 this is good. I, I'm glad you okay. took the time up front to just lay out the different answers to that central question of what's the relationship between the mind and the body. And obviously, you're going to be defending dualism. Uh, and what you're going to do now is offer three arguments for dualism. And what I want to say before we start doing that, in the live chat, they're asking great questions. So keep it up, guys. I'm going to come back to those when we finish going through the three arguments. Uh, just make sure you put the word question in in at the beginning. The other thing that I want to mention is right now I've got three likes on this video. So if you're liking this video, give it a thumbs up. Okay. Uh, maybe even consider subscribing. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into the first argument. And you call this the knowledge argument for dualism. Yeah. So what is the knowledge argument for dualism? So this argument traces back to a famous article by a philosopher named Frank Jackson, still alive. Um, Epiphenomenal qualia, I think was the name of the original paper, if your viewers want to read the original paper. Um, and the argument starts with a thought experiment where we imagine a um, brilliant neuroscientist who specializes in human color vision, and her name is Mary. But we imagine that um, for her whole life, she's been kept in a black and white room. Um, so no color on the walls. She's got like computers and television monitors, but it's all black and white. And maybe she's completely covered in like black and white clothing and so on. So she's never actually experienced color. But it seems like in this black and white room, we could teach her an awful lot about human color vision. She could come to know everything about what's going on in brains and retinas and so on when humans um, see color. Um, we can communicate that information to her through her monitors and we'll give her black and white books and so on. 
So by doing this, she can become, let's say, the world's leading expert in um, human color vision. She knows all the neuroscience. She knows all the physical facts about human color vision. Okay, um, and then here's what's interesting about this thought experiment. Imagine we release her from her black and white room and she sees color for the first time. So she holds like a, a red apple before her eyes for the first time. It seems like this would be a very interesting discovery for her. And in fact, um, if your viewers want, there's this whole genre on YouTube of videos of people who are colorblind who see color for the first time. Valspar, which was some paint company, developed these glasses that help people with certain kinds of color blindness to see color for the first time. And so there's all these videos on YouTube of um, people given these glasses and then they're often presented with colors like balloons or something. And what's the reason I mention it is virtually every time people are like overcome with emotions when they see color, these colors for the first time. They typically just immediately burst into tears. And it makes me a little emotional just thinking about it. I don't know why. Um, but just imagine like you've gone your whole life without seeing certain colors and you see them for the first time. Um, that would be a, an amazing experience, an amazing discovery. And so that's what happens to Mary. And so um, it seems like she would make an important discovery and maybe the way she would express that is by saying, oh wow, that's what it's like to see red. I've always wondered, <clears throat> what is it like to see red? Now I know. Okay, and the reason this is a problem for physicalism is, it looks like in her black and white room, we could have taught her all the physical facts about human color vision. But if physicalism is true, the physical facts are all the facts. So nothing would have been left out. And if that's the case, then she wouldn't have learned anything when she leaves her room. There's nothing left to learn. She knows everything there is to know about human color vision. But on the contrary, she does learn something. So she didn't know everything. So the physical facts must not be all the facts. Um, so I think the next slide lays this argument out step by step. Um, yeah, let me, slide. there we go. Yeah. So here's, here's the way to formulate it as an argument. Um, if physicalism is true, then in her black and white room, Mary could know all the facts about human color vision. We teach her all about what's going on in the retina and in the brain and so on. She knows all the physical facts. And if physicalism is true, the physical facts are all the facts. So she knows all the facts. But premise two, she learns something when she leaves her room. She makes a really important discovery. And then it's supposed to follow from three that, well, if she learned something, then she must not have known all the facts. That's supposed to follow from two. And then using one and three, we can conclude, oh, I guess physicalism is false then. Um, so that rules out all the physicalist answers to the question of what's the relationship between mental states and um, physical states. And I say that follows from one and three by MT, that's just modus tollens. Okay, so that's the argument. And then um, I just wanted to briefly consider a couple objections that have been presented. If you go to the next slide, um, the first objection is uh, the ability hypothesis. So here's what some philosophers have proposed. And I think this traces back to a very famous philosopher named David Lewis. This was his response to the argument. He was a physicalist and this was his objection. So it has to do with that move from two to three. Premise two says Mary learns something when she leaves her room. Um, and we conclude from that, oh, I guess she didn't know all the facts. If, you, if she learned something, she didn't know all the facts. So one possible response is, well, maybe she did learn something, but she didn't learn any fact. 
and here's how that might work. Um, you can also learn how to do things. And knowing how to do something isn't just a matter of knowing that various facts are true. Knowing how to play guitar is different from knowing that you're supposed to do such and such. Um, those sorts of skills are different from knowledge of facts. That's the idea. And maybe the skills that she gains when she leaves her room are things like being able to um, introspectively identify red when she sees it again. She can say, oh, there's red again. <laughs> now she's got a new skill. Um, and she can imaginatively recreate red experiences in her mind, just like you can if you close your eyes, I guess, unless you're a synesthete. I think that's a condition. Oh, no, that's not synesthesia. There's another condition where people lack the ability to form mental images. Um, I forgot what it's called, though. I've not heard of that. It's like anaphasia or something like that. Or I can't remember. But some people apparently report that they can't like form mental images. Um, but if you can and you close your eyes, you can get that little faint image of red. So maybe now Mary has that skill too. So these are skills that she's gained um, and that needn't require any sort of knowledge of new facts. But the problem is um, she could have all these skills with a Z in her room. We could um, manipulate her brain in her black and white room so that she has these skills and we can keep them subconscious. Unbeknownst to her, she has these skills. She never uses the skills, but she has them. So she'd be something like, um, this, this is kind of a dated reference now, but uh, do we remember the Jason Bourne movies? Yep. Um, so I love Jason those movies. All these, yeah, I like them too. So remember the very first one, um, he had all these skills that he had forgotten because of amnesia. And then they're sort of re-triggered and he realizes, oh man, I know how to fight and I know how to speak German and stuff. Um, so Mary could be like that. Imagine she has these skills um, in her room. Uh, she just never uses them. But it still seems like she would make an important discovery when she leaves her room. She'd still say like, oh, wow, that's what it's like to see red. And I mean, it seems like this suggestion that what she gains is new skills doesn't really capture this new knowledge. This new knowledge has nothing to do with like, the ability to introspectively identify red or imaginatively recreate it. She's just encountering red for the first time. And she's like, oh, wow, that's really great and interesting. And if she already had the skills in her black and white room, then the addition of these new skills can't explain her new knowledge. Um, so I don't think the ability hypothesis can explain the new knowledge that Mary gets when she leaves her room. So let's look at the next suggestion, which is the phenomenal concept strategy. So what these folks say is um, what Mary gets when she leaves her room is a new concept, a new way of thinking about something she was already thinking about in her black and white room. So um, I'll just give you another example. Uh, imagine a small child who's well acquainted with water and talks about water and thinks about water and knows that water fills lakes and rivers. And then this small child um, learns that uh, the, the chemical composition of water, it's H2O. So now this child can think about water in a new way. The child can think about water as H2O. You've got this new concept um, that the child can use to think about water. And now the child can think new thoughts like, oh, I guess H2O fills lakes and rivers. So that's new knowledge. And in fact, that's knowledge that was kind of hard won by chemistry. We didn't, humans didn't always know that, that H2O is what fills lakes and rivers. So it's new knowledge. But the idea is, this is new knowledge of an old fact. 
we already knew that that stuff fills lakes and rivers. We already knew that. Um, we were just thinking of that stuff as water. Now we think about that same old stuff as H2O. It's an old fact, but a new bit of knowledge. So this requires that you think there's a distinction between um, what makes up facts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> facts are coarse-grained. So the fact that water fills lakes and rivers is the same fact that H2O fills lakes and rivers. But knowledge is kind of fine-grained. So that it's one thing to know that water fills lakes and rivers. It's another thing to know that H2O fills lakes and rivers. And so the idea is <clears throat> she does learn something new, but that doesn't mean that she learned a new fact. It was an old fact. That's the phenomenal concept strategy. So again, they're trying to deny the inference from two to three. So just really quickly, here's a problem with the phenomenal concept strategy. It looks like there is no new concept here. <laughs> there are no phenomenal concepts. Phenomenal concepts are supposed to be a new special kind of concept you get when you have certain kinds of experiences. You apply these concepts from a first person perspective, um, introspectively when you're focusing on the contents of your experience. That's what a phenomenal concept is supposed to be. And the idea is that Mary gets a new concept of red when she leaves her room. These people admit that, well, Mary could have talked about red and thought about red in her black and white room, but she was thinking about red in like a third person way. Um, she could tell you fire hydrants are typically red, apples are typically red, um, but that's a different concept of red um, from the one she would get when she actually saw red. But the problem is it looks like it's actually the same concept. And here's just some quick evidence that it's the same concept. You can imagine Mary despairing in her black and white room and saying, oh no, I'm trapped in here. I'll never know what it's like to see red. I'll never know what it's like to see red. And then she leaves her room and she's like, oh, I was wrong. Now I know what it's like to see red. The only way this is a genuine contradiction or the only way she genuinely corrected herself is if she's using all the same concepts. Otherwise, it's just an apparent disagreement. Um, but if there's a real disagreement here, a real contradiction, she must be using all the same concepts. So she didn't get a new concept of red when she left uh, her black and white room. And then here's just one other way to see the same point. If you think she got a new concept when she leaves her black and white room, which concept is it? So here's the new knowledge she gets. That's what it's like to see red. That's what it's like to see red. Which one of those is the new concept? That is what it's like <laughs> to see red. She had, she had all these in her black and white room. Um, yeah, so I don't think the phenomenal concept strategy can explain what's new or interesting about um, what Mary gains when she leaves her black and white room. There doesn't seem to be any sort of distinctive concept here. Um, so that's the problem with the phenomenal concept strategy. So I think the next slide just kind of repeats the argument, just kind of reminding viewers how the argument goes. And I think this is a pretty good argument. Um, I like this argument. Um, so that's why I put it first. That's probably my favorite argument for dualism. But probably in the interest of time, we should move on to the next one, which is an argument. Yeah, let me. Yeah, go ahead. So, so I will say this, uh, my friend Joe Schmidt, I, I think you know Joe. Yeah. He's in the live chat and he's got some objections to this argument but what i'm gonna do is rather than interrupt right now i'm yeah. gonna just save all the questions for when we finish going through all three arguments okay so we'll joe we'll come back to your question keep it up you're asking great stuff in fact all the questions that we've gotten so far are just really good i can't wait to uh 
convince you that dualism is false, Dr. Bogart. I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> uh, I actually like dualism. Okay, let's go ahead and <clears throat> go to the next argument. So this is the personal identity argument for dualism. Yeah. So I just really quick put an old picture of me in there. Um, so that's, that's you? <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's like 20 years old now. And that's me actually in front of the Canterbury Cathedral. Some people like to get close to the cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was really far away <laughs> with uh, but yeah, that's an old picture of me um, without your beard it just looks so different without the beard um yeah so that was i think in 2001 um i was studying abroad in england at the time but i chose an old picture just um for illustration purposes so imagine looking at an old picture of yourself and saying like oh yeah that's me back in 2001 or whatever what you say is true you know that that person that's who you were that person became you so we've got um sameness of person here there's really just one person here um so of course my features have changed quite a bit now i have a beard back then i didn't have a beard um back then i hadn't even studied any philosophy yet really now i know more about philosophy so i've changed quite a bit in many ways um from that person 20 years ago but that person is still me so we're numerically identical we're one and the same person even if we're qualitatively very different we have different qualities different features and so the puzzle is um in virtue of what are we the same person how is that person the same person uh, that i am so if you go to the next slide here's a way of framing the conversation so what we're trying to figure out is on the next slide. Uh, yep, sorry. <laughs> I have okay. to switch back and forth to get it to change. Okay. Oh, no. Um, can you go to the next slide? I feel like uh, maybe the slides are in the wrong order. Yeah, that's the, that's the one I wanted. Okay. Um, so here's a way to frame the conversation. What we're trying to figure out is the conditions under which A and B are the same person. So of course, A and B are different names, but sometimes we use two different names for the same person. So under what conditions would A and B name the same person? What, what has to be the case for A and B to be the same person? So um, obviously something has remained the same in those 20 years that in virtue of which I'm the same person as that person in the picture, um, but what has remained the same? And the puzzle is um, to try to figure out what the materialist can put in that little gap there. What can the materialist say has stayed the same in virtue of which I am the same person as that person in the picture? Um, so maybe now would actually be a good time to go back a quick slide, not forward, sorry, but back. So here's an overview of the argument and then we'll get down into the details a little bit. Here's how the argument's supposed to go. If dualism's false, then um, this sort of personal survival over time and change the way that that person in the picture has survived and become me, either that's impossible, and so really I'm a different person than the one in the picture, or um, if we're ruling out dualism, then the answer's gotta be something that is compatible with physicalism. And so it's gonna be sameness of matter, or sameness of body, or sameness of brain, or maybe a sort of continuity in space and time, that's spatio-temporal continuity, if you sort of like rewind the tape of my life, <laughs> you'll find an object kind of like going back in time and then eventually 20 years ago, it was in England. So maybe it's that kind of spatio-temporal continuity that explains why that person in the picture is the same person uh, as me. 
or a kind of psychological continuity. If you trace back my psychology back in time, you'll find that it traces back to the psychology of that person in the picture. And it's in virtue of that that we're the same person. Okay, so those seem to be the options if dualism is false. Of course, what the dualist says is it's the same soul. <laughs> it's the same immaterial mind. Um, that person in the picture has the same mind, the same soul as I do. Or that, that person just is that same soul as I am. But if we're ruling that out, then the other options are no survival or something explains the survival that's consistent with physicalism. Okay, and then what I'm going to try to convince you of next is um, personal survival over time and change is possible, but it's not determined by any of those things that are compatible with physicalism. And actually, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince you that it's possible. Um, I think, I, I hope that's just obvious that you've been around for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been around for years. And yeah, I guess, what can we say in defense of that? Besides like, Although it's it's rare in philosophy to just give like a knockdown argument and prove that your opponent's wrong, that never really happens. Um, but if somebody's willing to say, you know, actually I haven't been around for a long time. I just came into existence five minutes up, and here's a new person again, and whoop, here's a new person again. <laughs> if somebody's willing to say that, like that's as close as you get to winning an argument in philosophy. That's just so hard to believe. <laughs> Um, so that's all I can really say in defense of the claim that you've been around for a long time. It's pretty obvious. Okay, but then from one and two, it follows that dualism's true by modus tollens. Okay, so let's look at some of the options that are compatible with um, physicalism. So what you might say is, oh, the reason, here's, here's what it is in virtue of which A and B are the same person. Here's what it is in virtue of which I'm the same person as that person in the picture. Same matter. It's com I'm composed of the same matter as that person is. I mean, that's not a very plausible answer because you, you already can sort of suspect that I'm not composed of the same matter as the person in the picture. Um, I've lost a lot of matter. I've gained new matter. Um, we're constantly like um, gaining and losing new matter, sloughing off old matter. Even our neurons, I mean, some people say like, well, I've heard neurons never die or something like that. But the atoms that compose your neurons are constantly being recycled. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the matter that composes you now is very different from the matter that composed you uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, in my case, 20 years ago. Um, or we can go all the way back to when you were a teeny tiny little baby. Obviously, you've gained matter since then. You've gained a lot of mass. Okay, <clears throat> and what I, what I do here on this slide is um, I'm just gonna quickly go through counterexamples to the biconditional that's at the top of the slide. We'll start in the left to right direction, and then we'll go, we'll give counterexamples in the right to left direction, just to show that these sorts of proposals are neither necessary nor sufficient for um, uh, personal survival over time and change. So let's think about sameness of matter first. It, could it really be true that A is the same person as B, if and only if, um, they're composed of the same matter. Well, that's not necessary because as we've already said, I'm the same person as that person in the picture um, 20 years ago, even though we're not composed of the same matter. So being composed of the same matter is not necessary for personal identity. So we're giving a counterexample in the left or right direction. That person in the picture is the same person as me. So the left side of the biconditional is true. 
but the right side is false. We're not composed of the same matter. You can also go in the right to left direction. You can think of cases where um, two people are composed of the same matter and they're two people, they're not one person, they're distinct. Um, so I give an example there, I say reconstitution of matter. So imagine that the last 20 years, God has been following behind me with like a little dustpan and he's collected all the atoms that I slough off. So like, as I rub my skin and atoms fall off, imagine that God miraculously collects them and puts them in a little jar. Um, so that over time, he collects all the atoms that composed me when I was 20 years old. Now suppose he reconstitutes those atoms in exactly the same arrangement they were um, 20 years ago. So now that thing that he reconstituted, I guess it would be alive and it would talk and it would, it would say things like, oh, I'm Thomas Bogardus. Um, I thought I was in England and stuff. <laughs> um, but that person's not me. So obviously now that shows that um, just being composed of the same matter, that person is composed of the same matter that I was composed of 20 years ago. But that doesn't mean that he is the same person that I was 20 years ago, because he's not me. So I hope hope that made sense. Just yeah, yeah. Here, yeah, here's I'm, just another. I'm just sitting back. You know, a lot of times I'm more interactive, yeah. but you're doing such a great job. I'm just sitting back and listening. Great. So here's just another really quick way to see that. Imagine that it is super improbable, but suppose that somehow through your diet and whatnot, you have come to be composed of all and only the same atoms that composed Napoleon Bonaparte or something like that. That doesn't mean you are Napoleon Bonaparte. So just being composed of the same matter as somebody doesn't mean that you are that person. Okay, um, so how about sameness of body? Um, could it be that A is the same person as B if and only if um, they have the same body? Well, let's look at a counterexample in the left to right direction to show that um, having the same body isn't required to be the same person. And so there I mentioned brain transplants. So imagine that we like open my skull and open your skull, and then we sort of switch brains. We do a little brain transplant. We don't have the technology to do this now, but it seems like it's only a matter of time. Um, so imagine we do that. Most people think, and I think this is the right answer, that I would end up in your body, I would kind of go with my brain. As a dualist, I don't think that that's entailed. I don't think that I must go with my brain, but I think that's probably what would happen. Ultimately, I think it's kind of up to God what happens to my mind and where it goes and what body it's associated with. But I think that would happen. I would follow my brain and end up in your body. And so after the surgery, I'd look down and I'd see Jordan's body and be like, well, I got a new body. And you do the same thing. Um, so that's that's enough to show that like prior to the surgery, the person here is the same person as the person over there in your body after the surgery. Um, so we've got sameness of person, but not sameness of body. I get a new body. So sameness of person does not require sameness of body. That's what that example is supposed to show. And then um, I don't believe in reincarnation. I should say that up front. I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in reincarnation, um, but I think that it's the sort of thing that's metaphysically possible. If God wanted to, God could reincarnate me um, upon my death and give me a new body if he wanted to. I don't think he's going to, and I don't think he wants to, but he could. Um, or I guess maybe a, here's a more Christian friendly example. Um, yeah, may, Am I going to get a new body at the resurrection? Um, 
I don't, if you think yes, if you think that's actually a new body, that glorified body is going to be a new body. Well, it's going to, then we'll have a case of sameness of person, but difference of body. So sameness of body is not required for sameness of person. And the same thing would happen with reincarnation. In reincarnation, you have sameness of person. The same person is there prior to reincarnation and after reincarnation, and yet you get a new body. So all that's supposed to show that sameness of person doesn't require sameness of body. Okay, what about in the other direction? Is it the case that sameness of body entails sameness of person? Well, I think the brain transplant case shows that um, sameness of body is not sufficient for sameness of person because, you know, after the brain transplant operation, my body is still here. If sameness of body was enough for sameness of person, then I would still be here. But I don't think I would still be here. I think I would be over there with your body after the brain transplant. Or here's a more far out example, um, a kind of Freaky Friday kind of body swap. Um, so I think that those sorts of situations are metaphysically possible. I don't think they actually happen, but I think God could do that if he wanted to. Um, God could do a little body swap if he wanted to. Um, but then that shows just like the brain transplant case that sameness of body isn't enough for sameness of person. Because in the Freaky Friday case, like the body stays here. If that entails that the person stays here, then we wouldn't get this body swap. Okay, um, so let's move on to the same brain. This one's a little trickier. I think in the left to right direction to show that sameness of brain is not required for sameness of person. Here's an example adapted from Alvin Plantinga. Um, he asks us to imagine that you're sitting there reading a newspaper, enjoying some coffee, and unbeknownst to you, God or some crazy neuroscientist or something, your brain has two hemispheres, and here's what God does, or this crazy neuroscientist. We sort of transfer all the information from one hemisphere to the other hemisphere. God makes this happen miraculously. And then God destroys this hemisphere and puts a new one in there. And then we transfer all the information back. And then God destroys this hemisphere and replaces it with a new one. And then we put all, well, we put half of the information back in the other hemisphere. So we kind of end up where we started. Sort of like backing up your computer, you know, you might like yeah, yeah. do an external hard drive, get a new computer, put it back on the computer. So do that with your brain. Um, planning of things, it's metaphysically possible that you survive this process. And if you agree, then we're halfway to a counterexample. But your brain does not survive this process. Um, you get a new brain at the end of this process. So that means that sameness of person um, is not enough to guarantee sameness of brain and um, sameness of brain is not required for sameness of person because we've got sameness of person throughout this whole story, but not sameness of brain. So sameness of brain isn't required for sameness of person. So again, that's a counter example in the left to right direction. The right to left direction is a little trickier and I'm tempted to kind of skip it uh, because <laughs> I think it's enough to just have a counter example in one direction, but let me try my best to do it. <laughs> So um, this, is, this is probably the least plausible counterexample that I'm going to give, but I, I think it might work. Um, so again, brains have two hemispheres, and um, people can actually survive a hemispherectomy, especially if you do it early in life. If you find out in like a small child that there's something wrong with one of the hemispheres, you can actually remove a hemisphere, and due to the plasticity of the brain, the kid actually ends up having quite a normal life. There's really not much diminishment of cognitive function if you do it early enough. Um, so people can survive the loss of a whole hemisphere. And um, a, a treatment for epilepsy 
I think it still happens, is to separate the hemispheres, to sever the corpus callosum and se separate the hemispheres so that seizures when they happen are not so extreme and they're limited to one of the hemispheres. So people can survive um, these sort of, I think they're called commiserotomies if I remember correctly, um, severing of the corpus callosum, people can survive the loss of a whole hemisphere. Okay, we've also already talked about brain transplants, which we don't have the technology to do yet, but there's no reason to think that this is in principle impossible. Okay, now bear with me. <laughs> let's um, do something. You're doing a great job. Yeah, let's do something really wild in this thought experiment. Um, nobody's actually gonna get injured in this thought experiment. We don't have to clear this with any ethics boards, but imagine we sever a corpus callosum, remove both hemispheres, and transplant each one into a new skull. So we evacuate um, two skulls. Yeah, evacuate two skulls. We scoop out the brains of two skulls, so they're just empty skulls. We take this other brain, cut it in half, put each hemisphere in um, each of those new skulls. This is pretty gross. Um, it seems possible for you to survive this process. Now, whether you end up with your left hemisphere or the right hemisphere, um, who's to say? It's, it's, it's at most one of them. It can't be both. You can't be in both places. It's at most one of them. Or perhaps you're annihilated in this process and we just get two new people. That's another possibility. Um, but one possibility is you end up with the left hemisphere or you end up with the right hemisphere. Okay, so you can survive hemispherectomies, you can survive a hemisphere, um, a separation of hemisphere and a double brain transplant. Now here comes <clears throat> the argument. Um, suppose now, set aside all this brain transplant stuff and the separating of the hemispheres. Suppose we just do this. We just remove one of the hemispheres and then transplant the remaining hemisphere into a new skull. The other hemisphere is destroyed. Now, it's clear that your brain has survived. Your brain is just smaller than it was before. We just removed a half and put the remaining half in a new skull. Your brain has survived. But it's an open question whether you have survived. Maybe you have, maybe not. We've already proven that although you may survive this sort of hemispherectomy and brain transplant, you need not. Because again, like, it can't be the case that you must follow the hemisphere because otherwise it would, it would be true that you must follow the left hemisphere and you must follow the right hemisphere when we did the double transplant, but you can't follow both. So in the case that we're imagining now where we just do one hemisphere, it's required that your brain survive, but it is not required that you survive. So this shows that people are not the same as their brains and sameness of brain is not enough to guarantee sameness of person. All right, uh, that was my best attempt to do that kind of example. That's, um, that's the clearest I've heard that explained. I think Richard Swinburne offers that very yeah. frequently. Like anytime I hear him talk on the topic, he gives that example. And yeah, it's never like that. fully clear to me what he's saying. So I appreciate yeah. you laying well, that out slowly. Yeah, I think this one might be a little different. Um, I'm, it's been a while since I read the Swinburne, but last time I checked, and I have checked into this, and the way Swinburne presents the argument, I'm, I think, unfortunately, it's sometimes couched in terms of knowledge. Like when we imagine this sort of double hemispherectomy, um, we can know what happened to the brain, but we cannot know what happened to the person. Um, 
and unfortunately, I think that's not the strongest way to put the argument. That's why I put it in terms of possibility and necessity. Um, so uh, that's just a very slight variation and hopefully um, a minor improvement. But in the interest of time, let's move on to the last two proposals, if that's all right with you. Um, yep. Let's go to the next slide. So spatio-temporal continuity says, here's what it is in virtue of which you're the same person as that person in the picture. Or sorry, I should say me. <laughs> here's what it is in virtue of which I'm the same person as that person in the picture. Um, again, if you kind of rewind the tape of my life, you'll see that although I occupy this position in space at this time, previously I was here, and previously I was there, and previously I was there, keep rewinding, you'll find that I was in England. Um, and so eventually I end up in that very space at that very time. So that's why um, that person is me, spatiotemporal continuity. Um, now here are some problems, here are some counterexamples in both directions. In the left to right direction, this one's kind of far out, this one's a little sci-fi, but if you think <laughs> teleportation's possible, then that would be a radical spatial jump, um, but preservation of personal identity. So that would show that you could have survival of a person, you could have personal identity without spatiotemporal continuity. If you think those sorts of spatial jumps are at least possible, then that shows that our concept of a person doesn't really have these um, entailment relations to our concept of spatial continuity. It's not really required that there be spatial continuity. Also, if continuity um, requires that there be like a previous um, entry in the series, if it requires a sequence, then what do we say about the very first moment of the sequence? Um, so imagine when I first came to exist, call me A when I first came to exist. Let's give me the name A. Let's also give me the name B. Now A is identical to B, um, but there's no spatial temporal continuity because there's no sequence. There's no series here. It's the very first moment of my existence. So I, yeah, I don't know exactly how, how much weight I want to put on this objection, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, if spatial temporal continuity requires a sequence, requires a series, then what do we say about like that very first moment of existence? Uh, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. Let's, let's go in the right to left direction. Um, if you imagine a case of fission, so this one's pretty sci-fi too. <laughs> um, imagine we develop the um, technology to like divide a person in half and then immediately like reconstitute their halves so that we could kind of reproduce by fission the way that some primitive critters do. You with me? <laughs> yeah. Um... So we get little like nano robots that um, we scan your body, we cut you in half, um, and then those nanorobots immediately rebuild the half of the body. So now we've got these two perfect duplicates of uh, you. Now, each one of those duplicates is going to be spatio-temporally continuous with you, but they can't both be you because they're not each other. So imagine I undergo fission, and then we end up with my left half and my right half, and then each one kind of reconstitutes so as to survive. Um, the left half can't be me um, because that would require also, oh, sorry, let me, start, let me start over. These are both spatio-temporally continuous with me. If spatio-temporal continuity is enough for personal identity, then they're both identical to me. Both lefty and righty are identical to me, but they're not identical with each other. So now we've got a violation of the transitivity of identity. We've got righty identical to me, me identical to lefty, but lefty is not identical to righty. That's a violation of the transitivity of identity. So that's enough to show, I think, that spatio-temporal continuity is not sufficient for survival of a person. Okay, and then lastly, psychological continuity. 
So that view says that um, here is what explains why I am the same person as the person in the picture. Don't trace back my positions in space over time, trace back my psychology. So now I know a fair bit about philosophy, but rewind the tape and you'll find like the amount of philosophy knowledge diminishing, <laughs> the ability to do math increasing <laughs> as we go back in time. So my psychology changes in kind of a continuous way, keep rewinding the tape and eventually you end up at the psychology of that person in the picture. So that's what it is in virtue of which uh, I'm the same person as the person in the picture. Here are some problems. First, in the left to right direction, um, people can survive radical discontinuities in their psychology. So just imagine amnesia or a transformative experience, taking your first philosophy class or something like that, or religious conversion. Um, these are radical changes in psychology, but nevertheless, preservation of personal identity. So personal identity does not require psychological continuity. Also, in the right to left direction, psychological continuity doesn't guarantee personal survival. Um, and we can think about this if we, um, let's just do the fission case again. So imagine we do this fission again, both of those products of the fission are gonna be psychologically continuous with me. If you trace back their psychologies, it traces back to my psychology. Um, but again, for the reasons we've already mentioned, they can't both be me because they are not each other. Um, so that's enough to show that psychological continuity does not guarantee uh, personal survival. Okay, so the next slide just recaps the argument um, and reminds your viewers how the argument's supposed to go. So we've um, defended both premises, the conclusion follows. So I think that's all we need to say. Okay, so let me uh, pause here. At this point in the interview, we've offered two, so you laid out what dualism is as well as some other views. And then you've offered two arguments for dualism. There was the knowledge argument, and now this is the personal identity argument. We're gonna offer one more and then we're going to go to your questions. So I promise everyone I'm, I'm seeing your questions in the live chat. They're awesome. We're going to get to them. Uh, so hang tight. We got one more argument to go through. And this is called the undefeated dualism argument. Yeah. So go ahead and unpack this one. Okay. Well, maybe I'll just read it first since um, probably your viewers are already reading this. So premise one just says, it seems that mental properties can come apart from their neural correlates. And it seems like minds can come apart from bodies. Furthermore, it also seems when you think about it, that mental properties are just different from neural correlates. And it seems like minds are different from bodies and brains. So all of these things, if they're true, if things are as they seem to be, well then dualism would be true. At least a kind of property dualism. But if you're down with also the minds seeming distinct from bodies, then we got full-blown substance dualism. Okay, so premise one is just reporting um, the facts that is pretty widely agreed upon that dualism is the intuitive view, the common sense view. Humans are kind of born dualists. And again, even very many physicalists will grant this. They will lament the fact that humans are kind of hardwired to be dualists. Um, and what premise one is kind of reporting is um, the sort of thought experiments we've already mentioned a bit. Um, so here's just one really quick. If you ask yourself, how do I feel about the prospect of life after death? The survival, my survival of the destruction of my body. Is that 
possible the way that you know like unicorns are possible we're not committing to the actual existence of these things or the actual happening of life after death we're just wondering is it the sort of thing that could happen like unicorns a fountain of youth um a 10 mile tall mountain and so on um, these things are possible even if they're not actual so is life after death in that life beyond the death and destruction of my body is it in that category or is it in the category of things that are absolutely impossible no matter what things like um two plus two equaling five and superman dying but clark kent surviving um things like that water that is an h2o things that are absolutely impossible so which category do we put um the afterlife in is it possible even if very improbable i'm saying this for your atheist viewers <laughs> um, i think that life after death is gonna happen um, but right now we're just wondering is it possible mm -hmm. um, so I think even atheists should admit that, okay, that's the sort of thing that seems possible in the weakest sense of possible, like unicorns and fountain of youth and so on, flying spaghetti monsters and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's possible in that sense. Well, that would mean, that would entail that dualism is true if it actually is possible. Because what we're conceding is that you could be around even when your body and brain have been destroyed. That could happen. Well, that means that you are not your body and, or your brain. Because if you just were your body and your brain, there's no way you could have one without the other. That would be absolutely impossible. It would be like having Superman without Clark Kent or water without H2O. So that's all premise one is saying is it seems like um, life after death is possible, reincarnation is possible, disembodied minds are possible. That's what people call ghosts. Um, all of these things are possible in the in the widest sense of possible. So I feel like, again, I need to just briefly say, I'm not telling you that ghosts exist and I'm not telling you that reincarnation happens. I'm just telling you these things are possible in the broadest sense of possible. Okay, that's all premise one is saying, really. Um, and then premise two is just saying, you know, we should believe that things are as they seem to be unless we have good reason to think otherwise. So here's kind of a philosophical way of putting that absent defeaters we should believe that things are how they seem to be. A defeater is something that kind of rationally forces you to abandon a belief or revise your belief. Um, and then premise three says there are no defeaters. That's the one that I'm going to defend. Um, I'm going to defend that premise. And so what would follow then is, oh, we should, we should believe that dualism is true. Notice the conclusion is not dualism is true. <laughs> the conclusion is just rationality is sort of demanding that I believe dualism. Okay, so just really quick, here's a little further defense of premise one on the next slide. I've got yeah. some quotations from hardcore physicalists of various varieties. So David Papineau, Dan Dennett, um, Chris Hill, these are all hardcore physicalists, reductive physicalists. Um, Peter Van Inwagen is a Christian, but he's a Christian materialist. He thinks that persons are bodies. He's a dualist about mental properties, but he's a materialist about um, human persons. So I'm not gonna read all these quotations. If your viewers want, they can just pause this video and read them later. But we've got all of these people um, admitting that even they kind of have these dualist intuitions. They think that there are defeaters for the dualist intuitions, but they're, we're just on premise one right now. Premise one just says, we all have these dualist intuitions. <laughs> um, dualism seems true. 
physicalists think, nevertheless, I've got good reason to reject dualism. That's what we're going to turn to next. Are there actually good reasons to doubt these dualist intuitions? But for now, we're just giving some evidence that, you know, people do tend to have these dualist intuitions. Um, Paul Bloom is a psychologist that your viewers might be interested in checking out. He's written some interesting stuff from a kind of psychological perspective, just documenting um, the reality of these dualist intuitions among children, for example. If you ask children certain kinds of questions, you can extract from them the belief that minds are different from bodies. Children, for example, have no problem watching Disney movies where people immediately and radically change their bodies. They become frogs or clocks or candlesticks or broomsticks or whatever. So humans, just as a matter of fact, feel very comfortable um, ascribing consciousness to all sorts of things and the physical substrate doesn't really seem to matter. You can kind of swap that out, it doesn't matter. Um, so we're just sort of hardwired to think that minds are different from bodies. That doesn't prove that it's true, but it sort of shows that um, dualism has some momentum. It's sort of like, it's the, one, it's the view that seems true. Going into the conversation, dualism is the view that seems true. And um, just really quick before we move on, I'll just mention that the way this argument kind of, I don't know, the way this argument kind of occurred to me was um, when I was sitting in that cognitive science classroom, I realized like, oh, they're, they're trying to like reject dualism because they think that like all of us coming into this classroom are kind of natural, natural born dualists. And so they're trying to like undercut this belief in me or rebut this belief in me made me think, oh, wow, the burden of proof is actually kind of on the physicalist. It's kind of up to the physicalist to defeat these dualist intuitions. And then after more years in philosophy, I realized, like, as soon as you settle the burden of proof question on a, um, on a topic in philosophy, it's kind of game over. <laughs> because in philosophy, as you may have noticed, it's very difficult to construct positive arguments for conclusions it's very easy to poke holes in arguments. That's, that's the easiest thing in the world to come up with counterexamples and poke holes in arguments. That's kind of what we were just doing with the last argument. And so if dualism is the common sense view and it's up to the physicalist to defeat this view, all the dualist has to do is just kind of poke holes in these defeaters and then dualism wins. Um, so that's what, that's what I thought I would do in this paper. Um, so let me just briefly tell you how that went. Um, if you go to the next slide, Jordan, we'll see some proposed defeaters. So I'll try to go through these really quickly because I know we've already used way too much time. Uh, maybe I'll just do some of these. I'll just do... You know what? If, if you've got the time, I've got the time. I'm enjoying this so much. Go All right. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just do a few of these. I'll do three of these. Um, so a modal operator shift, which you sometimes hear from physicalists is, look, here's the mistake that dualists are making. And then you get all these proposals of a kind of like modal fallacy that dualists are making. So um, I'll just give you a couple examples that are kind of easy to understand. So um, one proposal, and this one traces back to Antoine Arnaud, who was responding to Rene Descartes. He suggested that maybe the mistake Descartes was making when Descartes thought that he could um, clearly and distinctly perceive a possibility on which he existed while no physical objects existed. Um, what Arnaud pointed out was, maybe what's really happening, Descartes, is you're failing to see an impossibility and mistaking that for seeing a possibility. 
you're failing to see that it's impossible for you to exist without your body, and then mistaking that for successfully seeing the possibility of you existing without your body. And Arnaud gave an example of like, uh, and he used this example because he knew Descartes loved geometry, but imagine a newbie to geometry who sees a right triangle, and let's say it's like a one side, one side is three, one side is four, we don't know the hypotenuse, we're not told the hypotenuse, and this newbie to geometry is asked, um, could the hypotenuse be six? Could it be four? Could it be five? And the newbie's like, yeah, I think the, the, hypotenuse of this, the hypotenuse of this right triangle could be four, could be five, could be six. These are all possibilities. Really what's happening with this novice to geometry is um, the novice is failing to see that the hypotenuse could not be six, could not be four, must be five. Um, they're failing to see the impossibility of six and four and mistaking that for seeing the possibility of six and four. When they say, oh yeah, six is possible, four is possible, they're making this kind of uh, mistake. And so maybe the dualist is making the same kind of mistake. You fail to see that it's impossible for you to exist without your body, and you mistakenly conclude, oh, it, so it is possible for me to exist without my body. That's one, that's one way this argument goes. Um, I think I'll just leave it at that in the interest of time. So, um, Here's just a couple of responses. One is that this proposal will prove too much. It will overgenerate defeaters. If it is enough to require us to give up our dualist intuitions, it would require us to give up other intuitions that we should think are totally trustworthy, totally above reproach. So consider um, if I ask you, could the prime minister of England actually be a prime number, <laughs> like in disguise? <laughs> <laughs> Could the prime minister be a prime number? This is one of Alvin planning as favorite examples of something that's obviously um, true. The prime minister is not a prime member. Prime minister could not be a prime number. Um, so that's obvious. Yeah, the prime minister could not be a prime number. There's no way a person could be a prime member. That's just absolutely impossible. Um, so this is supposed to be an intuition that is like 100% rock solid trustworthy. But notice that the same consideration applies here. Like, oh, maybe you're making the same mistake. Maybe you fail to see the impossibility of a certain state of affairs and mistake that for a possibility. You fail to see that this is false and mistake that for seeing that it's true and so on. Maybe you're making a similar kind of mistake. So the point is just like this sort of bare possibility, like you know, maybe you're making a really foolish mistake. <laughs> That's not enough to defeat um, an intuitive belief like this. If it were, it would defeat all of our intuitive beliefs because um, this sort of like niggling skeptical worry would apply when it comes to all of our intuitive beliefs. Um, and then also it's worth pointing out, it would also, it would, this sort of proposal would self-defeat because the person who's offering this proposal is giving you a sort of argument. They're saying like, this sort of move that you're making is fallacious. If you make this sort of move, then you've done something invalid. Um, so they themselves are making a kind of inference. So they themselves are having an intuition of a kind, an intuition to the effect that this operator shift is fallacious, it is invalid. Um, but the very same sort of concerns that they presented to the dualists could be laid at their feet, in which case they would have to give up um, one of the premises in their own argument. So that's why it's a kind of self-defeat. Okay, okay. Look, just look. to clarify uh, that what this, objection is doing so the argument 
from Undefeated Dualism is saying, I have this seeming that these brain states are not identical to uh, these uh, mental states. Physical states. Oh, sorry, you said brain states first. I yeah. said brain states are not identical to mental states. You said it right, my bad. Okay, so they're saying, I have that seeming, and you know, you can consider the other stuff we talked about with personal identity over time and everything, you know, like, right. yeah, I've got these seemings. It just, it looks like, you know, dualism is, is uh, it strikes me as at least possible. <clears throat> um, now, what this person is wanting to say, the modal well, operator- can, can I stop you really quick? Can I stop yeah, really quick? yeah. Um, the sort of situations that we're being asked to consider are the ones that we judge possible. Situations where um, like the brain state's there, but the mental state's not, or maybe um, you're there, but your body's not. Um, so we're asked to consider situations like that. Could you survive the death and destruction of your body? Okay. Or could there be philosophical zombies? Maybe some of your viewers are familiar with that. Those beings would have all of your physical states, but none of your mental states. So we think about cases like this, and then we're asked, are those possible? And if you and it looks like many people and probably many of your viewers and even many physicalists say, yeah, that seems possible. Um, but that doesn't mean that dualism is merely possible. That would actually require that dualism be true. If these situations are possible, then there's no way that it would entail. It yeah, would no, entail there's dualism. no way that mental states are physical states and there's no way that people are their bodies. Okay, so yes, now you Okay, I see. Continue. Thank you for that clarification. Okay. This objection comes along, the model operator shift, and says, wait a minute. This seeming that you have in these little scenarios where you've got the brain state, but you don't have the <clears throat> mental state, or like you were just saying, th that seeming that you're having, you can't rely on that because what is happening is you're failing to see you are failing to see why it's not possible and you're mistakenly yeah. thinking that because you can't see why it's not possible, it is possible. Yeah, like the person who's new to geometry and you show them this triangle and you're like, what's the measure of this third side? Could it be four, five, six? And they're like, yeah, those are all possibilities. Um, what they might be reporting is just, I am ignorant of the answer. But if they genuinely thought, if they don't understand the way right triangles work and they thought, well, you know, with a normal triangle, um, if all I know is that this is three and this is four, well, yeah, the other side could be five, could be four, could be six. Um, so if they think those are genuine, like metaphysical possibilities, what's happening is they're failing to see an impossibility, mistaking that for a possibility. Gotcha. Okay. I, I get the objection now and I understand your responses where, hey, if you're going to make that kind of move, then I can do it to it's going to overgenerate <laughs> and, and even self-defeat. I got yes, you. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah, um, yes. So I think I'll leave that one there. And, and then just I'll wrap up with the an antipathetic fallacy and dual process cognition. Um, so this antipathetic fallacy is from that philosopher David Papineau. And his diagnosis of what's going wrong with dualist intuitions is he thinks dualists are making this mistake. Um, he thinks that when we think about mental properties like pain and pleasure and the taste of banana and so on, um, when we reflect on those things and we sort of deploy those concepts, we get these little 
faint echoes of the experiences themselves. So when you think about red, you get that kind of like familiar faint image of red. When you think about pain, maybe you get a little like wince of pain. It's not really pain, but it's something like it. We all know, I hope we all know what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> but Papineau says, <clears throat> when you think about C fibers firing or when you think about brains, when you deploy your physical concepts, you don't get these little faint images. And the mistake you're making is because these two concepts kind of trigger in me different experiences, the mental concepts when I deploy them trigger in me uh, that little faint image of the mental state, but the physical concepts do not trigger in me that same thing. Then I get all confused and I say, oh, there's no way these are identical. <laughs> Um, so again, it's kind of a boneheaded mistake that the dualist is being accused of making. <laughs> but yeah, that's the idea. Like, you foolish dualist, um, the mistake you're making is when you think about pain, you get that little wince of pain, twinge of pain. When you think about C fibers firing, you get no such twinge. And fool that you are, you conclude there's no way these are identical. Um, so that's the antipathetic fallacy. We conclude that the reason it's called antipathetic, I think the reason he calls it that is um, because when we think about brains and C-fibers firing, we don't think of them as having feelings. And so we mistakenly think they're not the sorts of things that could have feelings. It's something like that. Um, the problem is, again, this will over-generate defeaters. It will prove too much. Um, we're trying to be kind of like selective in our defeating efforts here. We're trying to just defeat dualist intuitions. But the problem is this proposed defeater will defeat too much. Um, so for example, it would defeat our intuitive judgment that pain is not euphoria. So think about that claim, for example, could the feeling of pain actually be the same feeling as euphoria? So I don't mean, just really quick, let me try to forestall a simple kind of confusion here. I don't mean, could we call pain euphoria? Sure, we could if we wanted to. I'm talking about the sensations themselves, that feeling you have when you stub your toe and the feeling you have when you eat potato chips or whatever, I don't know, um, that feeling. Could those feelings be the same, really? <laughs> I think I hope that your viewers are willing to admit that no, obviously not. Those are very different feelings. But notice that like the same sort of mistake that Papineau suggests could be happening with the dualist could be happening here. Hey, maybe the problem is when you think about pain, you get that little twinge of pain. When you think about euphoria, you don't get that twinge of pain. In fact, you get this very different kind of echo of an experience. And so that's why you're concluding that they couldn't be identical. So I think the obvious answer is no, that's not, that's not why. <laughs> that's not why I'm concluding that they're different. Um, I've got some other better means of um, evaluating whether or not they're identical. And I'm using that method to determine that they're distinct. And maybe I'm doing the same thing with my dualist intuitions. Okay, and then finally, um, I'll just mention dual process cognition. So this is another proposed defeater for our dualist intuitions. And the idea is something like this. Um, we've got these two processes by which we form judgments. One is um, sort of evolutionarily old, it's like back in our lizard brain or something, like in our brain stem or something. <laughs> it's evolutionarily old. It's very um, quick, non-inferential. Um, and when we use it to attribute consciousness, we rely on triggers like 
eyes? <laughs> Does the thing have eyes? Is it moving in a kind of um, non-inertial way that suggests volition? Um, and so when we see something like that, this little low road cognitive process, this evolutionarily old one, just immediately spits out the judgment, that thing's conscious. Um, so this is the sort of cognitive process, this low road cognitive process it's called, that we use to fool children when we do puppet shows. You know, we put eyes on them, we hide the human who's controlling it, the thing talks and moves, and then the child can kind of at least suspend disbelief or maybe even believe like, oh, that's, that's an agent. <laughs> this low road cognitive process is telling them that thing's conscious. Um, and we start attributing mental states to it, like, oh no, that puppet is sad and so on. Okay, so that's what the low road cognitive process is. We've also got this high road process that we use when we're attributing conscious states to things. And the high road process is um, evolutionarily new. It's sort of housed in um, our uh, prefrontal cortex where the fancy stuff happens. Um, it's inferential, so we kind of reason from theories um, and it's slow and so on, and we don't rely on these sorts of triggers that the low road process relies on. Um, we sort of evaluate things using principles and theories and then draw conclusions on the basis of that. Okay, so, so far I think that's all true. Here's how it's used, um, here's how it's suggested this would defeat our dualist intuitions. Some people say, here's the mistake that dualists are making. Um, they run through thought experiments um, and they think about, for example, like a brain. They just think about a brain and they ask, is this the sort of thing that has to be conscious? Um, and if we're entertaining physicalism and we use our high road cognitive process to evaluate a theory, we realize, oh, the theory entails, yeah, this thing is conscious. So our high road cognitive process is telling us, yeah, you know, at least according to physicalism, this thing's conscious. But our low road process is silent because there are no eyes, the thing's not moving, it's not talking and so on. And so it's this sort of um, discord or this sort of failure to harmonize that the dualist uses as a grounds to conclude, oh, you know, um, consciousness is something different from just mere physical states. So again, it's a kind of like boneheaded move um, that the dualist is being accused of making. Um, it would be like concluding that, you know, because Clark Kent doesn't appear to be a superhero, there's no way he could be or something like that. Um, just sort of like a boneheaded inference to draw. Um, so it's a little, little insulting to be accused of this <laughs> as a dualist. Um, but I think we can say a little more than that than just express our offense, you know. <laughs> um, we can also say if this if this defeater were sufficient to undercut our dualist intuitions, it would undercut a lot of our intuitions. Um, so just for example, imagine somebody proposes for your consideration the theory that the property of being a thumbnail just is the property of consciousness. That's what consciousness is. It's the property of being a thumbnail. So I chose obviously that false. Yeah, so I chose that example because it's obviously false. So we all have the intuition. There's no way that's true. Okay, but now imagine the dual process cognition person comes up and says, ooh, not so fast, you know, you're making this mistake. You're using your high road cognitive process to entertain a certain theory, this kind of wild theory on which being a thumbnail is consciousness. 
So the high road cognitive process is telling you, yeah, you know, at least according to this theory, the thumbnail, that just is consciousness. Um, but your low road cognitive process is silent, just as in the dualist case when we're thinking about brains. And it's that discord, it's that disharmony that is causing you to draw this inference. And of course, that's a really bad inference just because these just because your low road process is silent while the high road process tells you the implication of a certain theory, that doesn't mean that this judgment is true. So um, if that works to undercut the dualist intuitions, it should work just as well here um, and undercut our intuition that um, being a thumbnail isn't consciousness. So if you think, no, that's not enough, then you think you've got some other better way of forming this sort of judgment that being a thumbnail isn't the same as consciousness. And so you should conclude well, maybe I'm using that better method when I have my dualist intuitions. So I think the next slide just repeats the argument again to remind your viewers how the argument goes. So again, premise one is just, we all have these dualist intuitions, intuitions that if true would entail dualism. And then premise two is a pretty modest principle, I think, kind of like phenomenal conservatism. That's what it's, that's a philosophical view that, you know, if something seems true to you, you're entitled to believe it unless you have defeaters. And then premise three says there are no defeaters. And we looked at a few today together, but if you want to look at a few more, you could check out this paper that I wrote back in the day called um, Undefeated Dualism. And so from one through three, it follows that we should believe that dualism is true. This is the paper and it's yeah. free. You just have to go to Dr. Bogardis's website, which is in the link to the video. So it's really, really good. All right. That's all I have. Yeah. Did we? Okay. So perfect. All right. Now is the time for Q and A. So we've got a bunch of questions. I'm about to go through and pick some out. We'll try to get to as many as we can, but let me be respectful to Dr. Bogardis's time. How much more time do you have? I think we could do at least 20. What time is it? I don't have a clock. We've been going for an hour and 34 minutes. Oh, let's say at least 20 minutes and let's, Let's reconsider things in like 20 minutes. Okay. We'll we'll do a hard cutoff two hours. Okay. Maybe a little sooner. Okay. Oh, I see a little clock in the upper left corner of the screen. That's useful. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So if you've got a question, type the word question at the beginning, and then you need to uh, type what your question is. Okay. So what I will say while I'm searching for a question here is if you value... Uh, live streams like this, my animated videos, the stuff I do on this channel, please consider becoming a patron. Right now, if you become one of my patrons, you can actually win three books. Uh, so you just have to have a really good question for a scholar to win the books. All right. Let me um, pick one out here. So... Brian Nicholson asked, have any prominent atheist philosophers believed in free will? Ooh, that would be a better question for someone who um, really specializes in free will and is familiar with the literature and the landscape and who believes in what. But I, I guess I can at least say this. Um, this word, free will, is uh, very much a disputed term. And there's kind of di different conceptions of free will ranging from um, conceptions of free will on which it's compatible with determinism to conceptions of free will on which it's incompatible with determinism. 
Um, and I can at least say for sure that, yeah, there are some philosophers who will tell you they believe in free will, and it's a kind of free will that's compatible with determinism. Um, so there are many atheist philosophers like that who accept a kind of free will um, where it means just something like freedom from coercion. And yeah, as long as like your action originates in the right way from your beliefs and desires, it originates from your psychology in the right sort of way, that's enough for you to count as free. Um, and that is compatible with determinism. There are philosophers like that, many such philosophers like that. Um, as for the other end of the spectrum, uh, like full-blown kind of libertarian conceptions of free will on which free will requires the ability to do otherwise, or at least a kind of like source in compatibilism. There, um, I am just less sure. And if I said something, I there'd be too great a chance that I'd say something wrong about who believes that. Are there any atheists who believe in free will like that? I would bet that the answer is yes. There's got to be at least one. <laughs> <laughs> but as to who they are, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel confident naming names. That's not really my area of specialization. Okay. The next question is: Is belief in the soul as an immaterial substance really a doctrine that is supported by Scripture? It seems that more and more Christian philosophers are embracing physicalism, not only because it's a simpler stance to dualism, but because it's consistent with Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well, what's interesting there in the question is the, I think this is correct. Um, the questioner says, Christian philosophers are embracing physicalism, maybe because of considerations of simplicity. Um, of course, I don't know if that's true, because you don't just want a simple theory, you want one that explains all the data as well. And I don't think physicalism does that. Physicalism has to kind of deny these dualist intuitions, which I think amounts to denying very important data. Um, but also because it's consistent with Christianity, the questioner says. So yeah, um, I agree with this much. If you ask a Christian materialist, why are you a materialist? You typically don't get appeals to scripture. <laughs> you get philosophical arguments, scientific considerations, and then a sort of explanation of how this is consistent with scripture. Um, although I guess I should add that some people think that the Old Testament, like the natural reading of the Old Testament, sometimes points in a physicalist direction. Um, but I think there are some verses, at least in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament, that, as I said, flat out entail dualism. Um, one of them that I can think of, although I can't give you chapter and verse right now, but I'm pretty sure it's in Matthew, where Jesus says, um, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Um, and so that's straight from the mouth of Jesus. And he seems to be making some sort of distinction between body and soul, such that like destroying the body wouldn't automatically destroy the soul. It might be possible to destroy a body without destroying a soul. Now, I don't know. You, I think that a physicalist has a lot of explaining to do about that verse, especially because it comes straight from Jesus. Uh, but we also get some verses in Paul where Paul, I think this is in Thessalonians, where Paul recounts a story according to which a friend of his was taken up into the third heaven or something. That's what he says. And Paul says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. But just the fact that Paul like thinks it's a possibility that it was out of the body, that's sort of um, suggesting, or I think flat out saying to us that Paul has dualist intuitions. He thinks, here's a, here's a live option. This guy went up to the third heaven, but his body didn't. So that means that would entail dualism. The only way that could happen is if this guy was not his body. So I think Paul is 
saying something that entails dualism as well. Um, those are the two that come to mind immediately. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess there's some verses in Revelation where we get like um, some souls of martyrs under the throne of God calling out, um, how long, O oh Lord, how long until you avenge our deaths? That's one of my favorite verses. <laughs> that's, so, that's so metal. Um, of course, like using proof text from Revelation is tricky because of the genre, but it sure looks like um, John at least considers it, the author of Revelation, John, at least considers it possible that there be disembodied souls who have a mental life. All right, oh, and then also, oh, I'll just say these last couple things. Um, I think it's hard to make sense of the incarnation as a physicalist. You've got the second person of the Trinity becoming incarnate. If you're a physicalist and you think people just are physical objects, then some tell me what happened in the incarnation. You've got the second person of the Trinity becoming a material object, becoming a physical object. How did that happen exactly? And then also just um, Christians believe and have professed for um, almost 2000 years now uh, in the resurrection of the dead. Um, and if you believe in a bodily resurrection and a survival um, after death, and you think that some people's bodies will be will have been destroyed in the meantime, maybe through cremation or just natural processes, some people maybe who got just like annihilated, um, then it looks like we're gonna have, you know, sameness of person, but new body. Um, so the material, I'm not saying it's impossible for a materialist to explain that or give a story that would account for that, but um, I'll at least say that fits very naturally with substance dualism. Um, so yeah, the question was, does belief in the soul as an immaterial substance really a doctrine that's supported by scripture? Yeah, I think yes. <laughs> the next one, what key mistake do you think philosophers like Peter Van Inwagen and Trenton Merricks make as Christian physicalists? Uh, what key mistake do I think they make? Um, well, yeah, to be honest, um, so my understanding is um, Van Inwagen and Merricks are both on board with a kind of property dualism. So I guess they don't make any mistakes there. And as to why they are physicalists when it comes to human persons, um, I guess I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what their reasons are, but I imagine they would gesture towards um the typical sort of like well this is most consistent with science or this is the simpler theory or something like that but uh yeah i think i would be speaking out of turn if i told you what their mistakes are unless i had a better grasp on what their reasons are for being um physicalists about human persons and to be honest i don't know specifically why van and wagon or why merricks are physicalists about human persons um yeah, so I, I would have to actually check what their specific reasons are. I mean, I'm pretty familiar with reasons that are commonly given, but if you ask me, like, what reason has Van Inwagen given and what reason has Merrick's given, um, I would be relying on a very fallible memory, and I don't, I don't think I should do that. I'm going to rely on Andrew Moon, who's also okay. fallible. <laughs> he he offered this. He said, "If I am my soul, then has nobody ever seen me." Materialism keeps the common sense idea that we see each other. Peter Van Inwagen or Merricks have mentioned this. Oh, so if that, oh, if, oh I hope that's not the only reason. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard reasons like that. Um, like reasons like, well, I'm, you know, about six feet tall. How tall is my soul? 
I weigh like 180 pounds. Does my soul weigh 180 pounds? So you get these sorts of appeals um, to common sense. Um, now, I don't think these are exactly appeals to intuition because these aren't the sorts of things that I think rational intuition delivers. I think it is right to call these bits of common sense. They're not, they're not really on a par with dualist intuitions, I would say. These aren't deliverances of rational intuition that I am 180 pounds or that I'm about six feet tall or whatever. Um, so is dualism committed to denying these little bits of common sense? I guess I'll just say two things. If so, that's not the end of the world because you know what <laughs> just occurred to me, um, Peter Van Inwagen and Trenton Merricks deny a whole lot of common sense. I mean, those guys are both um, in the camp that say there are no, um, there are no chairs, there are no tables, although there are living objects, there are no um, composite objects that are not alive. So that's pretty wild. Um, so there's a little two quoque for you if we're just counting up bits of common sense that we deny. Um, but also, let's see, must the dualists deny these bits of common sense? Well, I guess we'd have to say, um, I guess we don't directly see souls or immaterial minds. And how could one even do such a thing? Um, so we don't directly see them. Um, I might see them by seeing something else. I might get that kind of indirect perception the way that I can like perceive that the oven is on um, by feeling the hot air coming off the top or something. I feel that the oven's on by feeling the hot air coming off the top. Or I see that the mailman is here by seeing the, the car drive up or whatever. <clears throat> Sorry, mail carrier, it's 2021. Um, I see that the mail carrier is here by, by seeing that the car has driven up or something like that. Um, so we can get this kind of indirect perception. Maybe that's good enough. And then um, here's something else that just comes to mind just off the top of my head here. Maybe the materialist has to say the same thing. At, at least the materialist who thinks that we're brains. The materialist who thinks that we're brains has to say we've never actually seen people unless you've opened up a skull um, because we rarely see brains. Um, and as for the materialist who thinks you just are a body, well, Brain, trans brain transplant objection. Um, I think that shows that we're not bodies. Um, but also, even if you think that <clears throat> we are a body, um, I guess you'd have to be a direct realist about perception to think that we ever like directly see bodies. If you think that our perception of the external world is mediated by something, um, and it's the sort of thing that's present in hallucination, then again, you're gonna have to settle for indirect perception which is probably all the dualists can hope for. So I guess I'll just say this. Um, let me just sum up uh, the last minute or so. Um, the only person who can really preserve this bit of common sense um, in a wholehearted manner is somebody who's a direct realist about visual perception, which isn't a super popular view. And you've got to think that human persons are bodies. Um, that's really the only person who could accept this. Um, if you're an indirect realist about perception, um, or if you think that people are brains or something else, um, then you've got to deny this bit of common sense or hold it kind of half-heartedly, in which case the dualist isn't in much worse of a position. But then also I just feel like I should mention again that it's a bit rich coming from um, Van Inwagen and Merricks that uh, philosophical views should hew closely to common sense because again, these are the people who deny that there are tables and chairs and really there are just 
simples arranged table-wise and simples arranged chair-wise and so on. All right. That leads to uh, Joe Schmidt's question. What are your thoughts on the argument from myriological nihilism for substance dualism, which I think um, Trenton Merricks offers? For substance dualism? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. no. Um, I thought he was maybe a material person. He does something I know, he, like I know he's a nihilist. substance dualism, but he does something like this. Well, my understanding was that um, Merricks and Van Inwagen um, are myriological nihilists. They don't believe in composite objects, except for um, living things. <laughs> you might wonder why. <laughs> and I, I, I don't really, I haven't seen any good reason why we carve out this exception for living things, except that we want us to survive um, this philosophical investigation. Um, but anyway, um, I am very sympathetic to myriological nihilism. In fact, I think I might be a myriological nihilist. I kind of like all the arguments against composite objects. And I do um, think that that would lead pretty quickly to substance dualism. I didn't list that as my top three, I guess because it departs so radically from common sense that it doesn't make the top three. It really requires um, an adventurous listener <laughs> to, to go along all the way to neurological nihilism. So that's just the view that um, although there are simples, things with no parts, there are no composite objects. Um, so uh, yeah, like if you've got like a H2O molecule or something, the hydrogen's real and the oxygen's real, but there's not some one, two, three, there's not some fourth thing, the water molecule. Um, there's just these atoms connected together. Although um, I guess we should say that oxygen itself is not a simple, but you get the idea. So yeah, um, I kind of like the idea that the only thing that really exists are simples. Some of them are uh, material, some of them are immaterial, some of them can think, some of them can't. Um, and then yeah, that would just really quickly eliminate the views on which I am a body and I am a brain because those would be composite objects. Um, yeah, but I guess I'll just, leave it to your listeners to look into reasons why imperiological nihilism is true. There's just a lot of puzzles of um, constitution that I think point in the direction of thinking the only things that could really exist are symbols. All right. Uh, the next question. I've heard Swinburne say that it is in principle possible that a sufficiently complex AI may one day produce a mental state. I was surprised to hear this. Do you think that code, like computer code, could produce a mental state? Um, so if the question is just, could this happen? Then I think the substance dualist should say, yes, um, God could. Um, God could associate an immaterial mind with really anything he'd like. Um, so we get that story in, is it numbers or something where the donkey talks? Is it like, what's the name of the- Balaam and- Balaam, yeah, and his donkey. So there, like, God decided um, that it would be a good idea to, like, associate um, uh, a very a, a sort of very sophisticated kind of mind with this donkey, at least temporarily, um, if you take that story at face value. Even if you think that that was just some sort of weird divergence into hyperbole or some sort of strange- divergence into a weird non-literal genre, whatever. I think we should admit that if substance dualism is true, um, God could associate minds with any sort of physical object at all, even a computer, um, even 
as the Disney movies have it, like a, a clock or a candlestick or a broom or something like that. That could happen if God wanted to. Um, but probably what Swinburne was considering at the time was without changing the laws of nature or something like that, could um, a computer produce conscious states? Um, or would God have to do something extra and miraculous to get a mind associated with this computer? So I think maybe that's the question. Um, could it happen without God doing anything miraculous? So um, the way I think about it, and I think the way Swinburne thinks about it, is God has kind of instituted a sort of regime or a system of psychophysical laws, according to which when matter gets into certain arrangements, um, there comes to be associated with it, a mind with various kinds of mental states. And so we've got these laws kind of already in operation. So maybe Swinburne was wondering, could um, a computer trigger these laws so as to produce mental states without God changing the laws, without God doing anything miraculous? Um, so I guess if that's the question, <clears throat> um, my knee-jerk reaction is to just defer to Richard Swinburne and say, if, he's, if he says yes, I'll say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also I think that's probably the right answer. Um, I guess, I guess maybe we should just say, we don't really know because we don't understand the psychophysical laws in enough detail to say. So I guess I'll just say, um, I will say that is possible, at least in the kind of epistemic sense of possible, it's consistent with everything I know. Um, yeah, I don't see why not. All right, the next question, where is the soul? Is it spatially extended with your body? <clears throat> um, I think that I at least want to, I having reflected on this a bit, um, I at least want to say rather tentatively that I'm, I think souls have locations. So contra Descartes, um, Descartes thought that like having spatial location was a mark of the physical. So anything that is spatially located must be physical. I don't think that's right. Um, I, I don't see why an immaterial object couldn't be spatially located. And I, I think that this is a bit of common sense that we should preserve if we can, that I am right here. <laughs> if you ask me where I am, I'm, I'm right here. Um, uh, I think it is kind of a needless divergence from common sense to say I am nowhere. I don't really wanna say that if I don't have to. Um, and Descartes had his reasons for saying that, but I don't think they were good reasons. So I'd like it to be true that like, I'm, I'm, where I, I'm where I seem to be, which is where my point of view is. And I actually think that if you think that's true, that you are where your point of view is, then you can actually get a kind of cool argument for dualism going um, that actually, um, actually uh, stems from this Dan Dennett article, where am I, question mark, where am I? And he imagines a kind of future technology where we remove your brain, but have it continue to communicate with your body through uh, transmitters and stuff. Um, so imagine that happens, and then you're kind of like remote piloting a body. Something like this happens in Avatar, the movie, and then there was a not very good movie, I think with Bruce Willis called Surrogates, where you get people controlling like drone bodies, um, which is kind of a cool thought, and maybe that'll happen if we ever achieve amortality and then people become very cautious about their actual bodies and they don't want to venture out into the world, um, or if we ever have another global pandemic. Um, and people just want to pilot bodies instead of actually take their real bodies out there. All right, that is a digression. Anyway, imagine that happens. If you think you go where your point of view goes, well, then that means like you're out there in the world navigating. That guy in Avatar is actually on the surface of the planet interacting with all these aliens, um, but his body isn't. 
and his brain isn't. So I guess he's neither his body nor his brain. Um, so if you think you go where your point of view goes and we can kind of project your point of view around the world, keeping your body and your brain here, hey, that's kind of cool. Um, that's an argument for dualism. Um, but the second question was, is the soul spatially extended? That I'm less sure about. Um, I think the Catholic view, the Thomistic view is yes, the soul sort of permeates the whole body. Um, and I guess I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't know if I just occupy like a point in space right here, <laughs> a few inches back. I don't know if I occupy a point in space or if I'm sort of spatially extended, but either way, I'd want to say I'm simple um, and can't be decomposed into simpler parts. And I think there could be extended simples. And maybe I'm an extended simple permeating my whole body, um, or maybe I just occupy a point in space and I'm present in my body just in virtue of um, getting direct knowledge from my body and having direct control over my body the way that God is omnipresent in virtue of being omniscient and omnipotent. I'm not omniscient and I'm not omnipotent, but I am, with respect to my body, I, I get knowledge directly and I have power directly. And that's maybe the sense in which I'm present throughout my whole body. All right. I'm just trying to go as fast as I can. Okay. Uh, our friend Joe Schmidt asked, uh, th think about that first argument you gave, uh, the knowledge argument. So he says, we cannot non-question beggingly assume that the what it is likeness of seeing red is not a physical fact. But given that knowledge of this fact requires actually experiencing red redness, wouldn't the physicalist simply reject that first premise? Because if Mary hasn't ex experienced it, then this is simply a physical fact she doesn't know. Yeah, can you go back to the first part of the question? Yeah, so I think it's right. We don't want to beg the question and assume that um, what it's like to see red is not a physical fact. We don't want to assume that. Um, but the, the idea behind this argument is not to assume that, but to kind of prove that. And the way you prove that is we suppose that we teach her all the physical facts about human color vision in her black and white room. Um, we haven't said anything about what it's like to see red or whether she learns something when she leaves her room. We've just said, um, you know, all the physical facts about human color vision, we could convey those uh, in her black and white room. So that is an assumption that I could convey to Mary all the physical facts about human color vision in her black and white room. Um, but then we conclude that there's something left out when we imagine her leaving her room and we assume she learns something. <laughs> um, and that's, that's pretty intuitively attractive to say she learns something. And then we say, well, if she learned something, must have been a new fact. So this must have been left out from the physical facts. So what it's like to see red is not a physical fact. I mean, that's the conclusion. It's not an assumption. But uh, maybe what the questioner is pointing to here is, um, isn't the first premise kind of question begging? How do you know that you could convey to Mary all the physical facts about human color vision in her black and white room? Well, the idea there is like, tell me what sort of facts the physicalist is comfortable with. Um, well, it's facts about physical stuff. You know, um, what sort of facts are those? Well, the sort of facts that physicists discover, I guess, facts about like, 
the location, velocity, charge, spin, charm. And Wave, so wavelength in the case wavelength. of Kelly. Okay, yeah. Matt, I was trying to do like all the fundamental physical properties. Um, those are all those are all physical facts. The um, the properties of the fundamental physical particles, all of those are physical facts. And those are the only physical facts, I would think. Like once we discover all the fundamental physical particles, whatever properties they have, that's it. Um, now you might get like surprising things emerging at higher levels when you combine these fundamental physical particles. But I think that um, a, what's the word, strict physicalist or like, uh, what's the word? A hardcore physicalist is going to say these surprising emergent properties are all explicable in terms of the lower level properties. Okay, so anyway, those are all and only the physical facts. And couldn't Mary know all of that in her black and white room? We could give her, like we could tell her, here's what happens in a brain when somebody sees red. We could even tell her, here's what will happen in your brain when you see red. <laughs> um, we could give her like in exquisite detail, the location, charge, mass, charm, yada, yada, of all of the fundamental physical particles in a brain. What's left out from a physicalist perspective? Of course, we kind of know, like having completed the argument, we know something is left out. But the question is from a physicalist perspective, what's left out? Nothing. I mean, we got all the, we got all the physical facts. We, we detailed everything about the fundamental physical particles. Um, so it looks like if physicalism is true, nothing's left out. But then the argument continues, rut row, something was left out. <laughs> something that she learned when she left her room. Um, so that's why it's a problem for physicalism. So yeah, I guess, I mean, in order to take this line of response, you've got to kind of explain how physicalism is compatible with the suggestion that there's something about the brain and an experience of red that we couldn't convey to Mary in her black and white room. What is this mysterious physics, you know, that couldn't be conveyed? Um, let me just say one final thing. I think this is this is going to be a little bit um, sketchy and inexact, but I think it's kind of useful and worth mentioning. Um, I remember J.P. Moreland when I took a philosophy of mind class with him at uh, Talbot. Um, he liked to talk about how there. This is this seems to be an important difference between like the physicalist and the dualist. Um, the physicalist approaches the problem of consciousness kind of like as if it's a scientific problem from a third person perspective as if they're sort of observing from the outside like what's going on when somebody experiences red and then all you can kind of note from this third person perspective is physical stuff things that are publicly available the dualist on the other hand pays closer attention to a kind of first person expected uh ex perspective a kind of first person experience um what it's like from the inside to have conscious experiences. That's sort of like the starting point. If you start there, you'll probably end up a dualist um, because there you focus on the kind of qualitative aspects of experience. Um, and it's hard to fit those into a physical world. Um, so I mentioned all that to say like, there's, there seems to be something right about that. Like the physicalist approaches this problem of consciousness from a third person perspective. And from that perspective, it looks like all that matters about consciousness could be conveyed to Mary in her black and white room from this third person perspective. She need not go through the experience in order to learn all the facts. Oh, sorry, can I just say one more thing, just really super quick. Um, I think this is a really good question. That's why I'm saying so much in response. Um, 
Oh, shoot. I think I just lost the train of thought. Hold on. Oh, yeah, here it is. So um, here's another way to kind of adjudicate this dispute. Ask the physicalist in question, what do you think the experience of red is? What is that? How does that fit into the physical world? Is it a brain state? Is it a functional state? We haven't really talked about functionalism, but what, whatever it is, tell me what the experience of red is. And they're going to have to characterize this in terms that are um, amenable to physicalism. And whatever terms they use, like uh, a certain brain state or a certain functional state, these are things that Mary could learn about in her black and white room. So yeah, it's just a kind of challenge. Like if you think that um, there's something that's compatible with physicalism that Mary couldn't learn in her black and white room, tell me what it is. All right, I'll stop now. All right, we reached two hours and five minutes. Uh, so <laughs> Eric do, Sampson. Let's do, let's do one uh, more you, really quick. Are you familiar with Eric Sampson? I think I watched a video. That yeah, he, he defends moral realism yeah. in a couple of my videos. So he has a good question that I wanted to ask you. But if you do, you have time? Yeah. Well, yes, I think I do. Okay. Do this it. I promise this will be the last one, no matter what. <laughs> All right. So it, he he asked, um, the soul has parts like beliefs and desires, etc. So it can undergo slow and even complete change. So aren't the difficulties of the physical physicalist views of personal identity reproduced for dualism? So um, let's see. So supposing the soul has parts and it can undergo slow and even complete change. So I would just say this. Um, I don't think the soul has parts in the sense of being composed of anything. Um, the soul has properties and features like beliefs and desires and sensations and so on. Um, but properties are not the same as components. Um, the soul is meant to be sort of myriologically simple. It has no parts that it could be decomposed into. There's just this one thing there that instantiates these properties, has these properties, um, but these properties aren't proper parts of the soul. And so we don't get the kind of um, puzzles about composition for a soul that we would get about um, composite bodies or composite brains. I think that's what the question is pointing to. Like all these puzzles of composition that arise for like the ship of Theseus and so on, um, wouldn't they arise for souls as well if souls had parts? I guess I would say, yeah, if souls had parts, then souls wouldn't really help us solve these puzzles of um, persistence over change. But if souls really are simple, um, have no proper parts, um, then it, then there is hope that souls will avoid or perhaps even solve these puzzles of material constitution or of constitution generally. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Bergardis, for being so sure. generous with your time. This was awesome. All right. Thanks for having me. It was nice talking with you. That concludes my interview with Dr. Bogardis. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you listen in next week for part two of this discussion. Today, Dr. Bogardis just argued for the truth of dualism, but next week he'll be arguing how dualism points to theism. If you enjoyed listening today, then please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening on and sharing this episode on social media. Also, please consider becoming one of my patrons. By becoming a patron, you will allow me to devote more of my time to creating content like this. The link to becoming a patron is in the notes, 
and I want to say that I appreciate all 37 of the current patrons that I have. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.